soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, this morning at 0300, we launched Operation Desert Storm. Now, you must be the thunder and lightning of Desert Storm. Welcome to Thunder and Lightning, Operation Desert Storm. My name is Jason Dias, and welcome back. This is It's War, Part 2. Yes, in addition to those Nintendo Game Boys that Mike Alonzo and I took with us over to the war, I also brought with me a Sony Walkman and just a few cassettes, among them The Who's Greatest Hits. And of course, that was Baba O'Reilly. No family members and friends, I'm not going to use the Bette Midler song during this podcast from a distance. I do not like that song. I didn't like it 30 years ago. And every time I hear it, I want to take a drill press and run it through my kneecap. I will do my best to provide a variety of music on the podcast, but the Bette Midler song is not going to make it on this podcast. If you want to hear that song, you can download it yourself. All right. When last we spoke... The war had started. Three o'clock in the morning, local time, Baghdad time, Kuwaiti time, and Riyadh, Saudi Arabia time, which is where I am 30 years ago this week. It's war. Now, one little clarification from last week's podcast. We arrived one night. We had a full day. And then the very next night, the war started. So that's where we're going to pick up the story. It is, uh, I have the, uh, I've had guard duty for two nights in a row, and so I have that third night off, and I'm looking forward to a nice restful sleep. And again, I keep harping on this because there are two solid generations that can't imagine living in a world without a phone in their pocket and, uh, and Wi-Fi and the Internet. Well, over in Saudi Arabia, uh, they're in Escon Village, not only did we not have those things, we didn't have a television, and we didn't have newspapers. I had that little transistor AM/FM radio, and Armed Forces Radio was saying, you know, things are going really well. Uh, the air war started, and by that second night, we were all just kind of happy to sit back and let the Air Force and the Navy do the heavy lifting with the air war. It was common belief that was going to go on. For a while, and like I said, for my part, I just wanted the ground war to get started because I knew when the ground war got started, it was going to be over so fast, so much faster than anybody thought. I will be doing a whole episode on why I believed that, and it had to do with the time I spent when I was in the active duty army before Desert Shield and Desert Storm and went down to the National Training Center at Fort Irwin and saw what the M1 Abrams main battle tank could do, especially in a desert environment, but that's for a podcast down the road. This now is the third night that we're in country. The war starts one night. Everything seems to be going really well, and on that third night, I have the night off. I'm not going to be up on the roof, and so I'm looking forward to just, you know, getting in my rack and, and going to sleep and was was going to be pulling guard duty the next day at midnight, so I was going to have the whole next day off, and, you know, I'd kind of learned where things were there in Escon Village. We had to walk about a mile um, every morning if you wanted breakfast. They brought us box lunches, which was really weird. They brought us box lunches for lunch, and then you could walk over for dinner again at the mess hall. And so that night, it's myself, Mike Alonzo, and a gentleman named Sergeant 
Fears. Sergeant Fears was a black guy that got sent to us from another unit. And the only word that I can use to describe him was he was very laconic. He was very, he was so easygoing and laid back. I've got a picture of him there in the episode description. That's John Moya, the third part of our three amigos in the background. He was so laid back and so easygoing that you might think him a little aloof. You might think he was sort of a little standoffish. That really wasn't it. He just didn't know any of us. He'd been sent from another unit. He was a sergeant, an E-5. And from the time he joined our unit in December of 1990 to this night that I'm talking about on this episode of the podcast, I'm not sure I ever heard him say more than yes and no. He was very quiet. He kept to himself. He wasn't a, a mean guy or a nice guy. He just was, he just, like the rest of us had that, how did we end up here kind of thing going on. Well, in the middle of that night, and like I said, everybody, everybody, if they're worried about anything, it's chemical weapons. But what we're hearing on, you know, the armed forces and the BBC on this little transistor radio that I have, and of course, rumors, 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 rumors. Um, did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? is that the, in the first night of the war, the American Air Force and the Navy, the Navy is firing Tomahawk cruise missiles from battleships that were tied up on Battleship Row during the attack on Pearl Harbor. The Missouri is launching Tomahawk missiles. I mean, there's, it's, it's, these World War II battleships are out in the Persian Gulf launching cruise missiles. It's just an amazing thing. And yet what we're, what we're hearing is that's it. We've wiped out. We've wiped out Iraq's ability to fire back, and more importantly, we've wiped out their Scud missiles that they had threatened to shoot at Israel. It's hard to believe in our contemporary day, circa 2021, in the year of our Lord 2021, that a country like Syria, they were on our side in the Gulf War. They were actually part of the coalition. They were the good guys, in air quotes. Um, and so, you know, this is very important because of Israel gets attacked by Saddam Hussein, and they're going to be, uh, and they start shooting back, none of these Arab nations are going to side with Israel. That's just no way. That is their ancient enemy. And so by the third night, that hasn't happened yet. And so I, I go to bed thinking everything's going to be cool. We have, our, um, we have our mop gear near us, and then we have our gas mask with us always. Now, on the first night of the war, when the war started, we all put our mop suits on. Now, from basic training and training throughout my entire full-time active duty career that preceded my time in Desert Shield and Desert Storm, there was a class that every single person took in basic training, and you had follow-up classes all the time. It was called NBC, November Bravo Charlie, Nuclear, Biological, and chemical. In basic training, you learned how to put on these clumsy, what were called MOP, M-O-P-P, -P, Mission Oriented Protective Posture suits. And when you put them on in practice, there was like these little rubber suits. I'm not even sure. It, it was like a, like a sweat suit that was lined with rubber. It was just really, really weird. It's very uncomfortable, very hot if it was hot outside. And you had these clumsy boots, these, these rubber boots that you had to lace up in this weird way you could barely walk in them. And then, of course, you had your mask, your gas mask that everyone had to learn to put on. In basic training, they actually take you into a room with tear gas burning, and you have to take off your mask. 
You know, I remember I told you about that that blessing I got from a family priest when I went to visit the Alamo the day before I joined the army. I always say that all these great things happened to me that I attribute to providence. On my day at Fort Sill, when I had to take off my gas mask to show that it was actually working, that's why you do it. They make you take off your gas mask, and the tear gas burns your eyes, and it burns your face, and it makes you sick to your stomach. And then you walk out of the building. It was one of the worst experiences in basic training. When I walked out of the building and looked up, it started to rain. And all the, the, there would be a lot of rain. And it was able to wash my face and eyes out right there as I walked out. So I attributed that to Providence again. Well, some things we didn't know uh, because I had only used the training mop suits. On the first night of the war, we had to open up the real mop suits. I did not know. Nobody knew. These suits were lined with charcoal. If this happened today, I'd probably get canceled from doing my podcast because I was technically in blackface all day the first day after the war because the charcoal, the charcoal that lines these suits gets on everything. We all looked like we had spread blackface all over our faces. And if you are taking nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare training, one of the key signs that you've been you know, infected with a nerve agent is a bad taste in your mouth and your eyes watering. Well, guess what happens when you get charcoal in your mouth and eyes? And so it was a very, very chaotic time that first night. And, uh, and so we are, we are now on the second night, and I'm finally, I get to go to sleep. I've kind of washed off my face a little bit. I've left my suit on because who knows? knows uh, what's going to happen. Nobody knew when we could take them off. We were allowed to take our gas masks off, but we had to leave our suits on kind of just in case. And so I'm laying on my bunk, and in the middle of the night, I'm not exactly sure what time uh, myself, Mike Alonzo, and Sergeant Fears are sleeping out in that common area there by these gigantic sliding glass patio doors. I hear a sound that, despite having a rather vast vocabulary, I cannot describe it to you. It felt as though someone had started at the top of the North Pole and cracked the earth in half, straight down the middle to the South Pole. Uh, you, you, hear, you see these terrible mass shootings now, and they'll interview the witnesses afterward, and they'll say, oh, I thought it was a firecracker. I thought I heard firecrackers pop, pop, pop. Nobody thought this was a firecracker. This was a crack that rent the air that wrenched your stomach. Well, let me turn the time machine way back to the late 1970s. In the 1970s suburbs of America, mine included, there between Randolph Air Force Base and Fort Sam Houston, on Sunday night, the networks used to have you know, the ABC movie of the night. This precedes cable television. This is the good old-fashioned Curtis Mathis, toom, 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 you know, turn the channel, adjust the rabbit ears this way for CBS and that way for NBC, you know, this kind of thing. Well, they would have these movies that would come on, a movie of the week, and you know, we would all watch them. If it was The Wizard of Oz or The Sound of Music or you know, one of the Disney movies of the week. Well, sometimes ABC would have a, a war movie on Sunday night. And as I said, I was a bit of a war junkie growing up. I was fascinated by history and American military history. And I love, you know, The Sands of Iwo Jima, The Longest Day. And there was another one that I absolutely loved. My brother, my dad, and I would always watch it. It was called The Last Bridge at Remagen. 
It's about the bridge that the Germans forget to blow up, and now they're defending it because now the Allies have a way into Germany um, to end to end World War II in the European theater. The Russians are closing in from the east. The Americans and the British are closing in from the west, and the Germans forget to blow up this bridge. Well, there's a scene where there's a big firefight going on the bridge, and I'm sitting there watching this you know movie sitting there in the foot deep shag carpeting of my parents' living room down in San Antonio, Texas. And I just say out loud, man, I would love to be there. You know, I'm living vicariously through the characters on the, on the I almost said on the screen, on the little 19-inch Curtis Mathis TV, you know, analog screen, the cathode tube screen. And my dad looks over at me and says, Jason, if you were there, you would be scared out of your mind. Now, he didn't mean that, you know, in a mean way. He's just saying, you know, most reasonable people would be scared out of their mind. Well, Back to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, middle of the night, this ear-crunching, stomach-punching, chest-compressing crack goes off. And I don't care how deeply you're sleeping, okay? It's going to wake you up, and it woke us all up. And for a split second, you felt that pinch in your gut like, "Uh uh-oh, this is real. Well... Sergeant Fears, who, like I said, had not said more than two words in the entire time that we'd known him, sits up and says in a clear voice, that's a god dang bomb, just like that, except he said, that's a GD bomb. And in this moment of just, really a moment of just what is that, just a little bit of terror because of the way he said it, that's a god dang bomb, Michael and I just busted a gut laughing. We just started laughing at the way he said it because we had never seen him demonstrate or betray any kind of emotion. And when I stopped laughing, my stomach was already kind of pinched from the sound. Now it's hurting. My ribs are hurting because I'm laughing so hard. I look over at him and a bit of a breach in military protocol. An E-4 is not supposed to tell an E-5 what to do. I looked over at him and I yelled, no Beep. No kidding, except I used a different word. Get your beeping mask on. And so I reach under my bed and I grab my rifle and uh, we're all putting our, our mask on, our Kevlar helmets. And on the first night of the war, we'd all gone on up to the top floor. And then someone said, well, what if a missile hits the roof? It's going to do more damage. And so then we decided we would go into the basement. Well, we finally decided on the third night that if there was any kind of an attack, half would go upstairs and half would go to the basement because what if the building collapses? You know, everybody in the basement's in bad shape. So we were just like, let's, let's split the difference here. Nobody really knew what to do. There had been no training for what to do in the event of a Scud missile attack. Well, like I said, Everybody hears this sound, and it's instant activity. And I'm told, Jason, go get a head count on for those that are – I was on the third floor. Go, go get a head count for everybody on the third floor. We need to know how many people. we got to make sure all of our people are here. And this is what I foreshadowed in a previous podcast about a moment that I'll always regret. As I mentioned previously, Guys like Mike and myself, we're unattached bachelors. We're not married. We don't have children. We don't understand what that's like. 
But in the 217th Evacuation Hospital, we had men and women. We had fathers and especially we had mothers with young children who, like me, a month before this night had been at home just living their lives, you know, nine to five in it, watching the local news and the sitcoms that came on afterwards and, you know, going out to eat occasionally, going to the movies, just living your life. And now, boom, you're here at the epicenter, literally, boom, you're at the epicenter of the greatest show on earth. Earth, And so I'm walking down the hallway getting a head count. People are coming in. You have to count because the, the mop suits don't have your name on your uniform. You can't really – everyone looks exactly the same, and they have the mask on, so you can't see their eyes. Well, I come to a young lady, and I can tell because her, her blonde hair is sticking out from the hood that goes over your gas mask. And there's no other word for it. You know, she's hysterical. You know, she is screaming and crying. I don't want to be here. I didn't want this. I want to go home. I want my kids. And again, without the empathy of a parent, I wasn't a parent in 1991, and I and I, I wasn't married. I was trying to stay, you know, hardcore, wire tight. Uh, I guess the only phrase is I I went off on her. I lost it. And I started yelling at her. You know, there's no crying in the army. You know, shut up. I knew for a fact that panic spreads like a yeast infection, okay? It's the worst thing in these situations. It's far better to fall back on dark humor and dry humor, as many people do in these very, very tense situations. The way Michael and I had when we laughed at Sergeant Fear's announcement that that's a goddamn bomb. And so. I just I told her, I said, you're crying, you're going to break the seal on your mask, and if there's a chemical weapon, you're dead. You need to stop crying because we don't want to take care of you. We don't need a casualty. And, and she pulled herself together. Well, I wish I could say that the next day she came to me and was born again hard and was like, hey, thanks for tightening me up. I really needed that. That's not what happened. She never, ever, ever, ever forgave me. For that, uh, she, uh, I was in that unit for another year and a half after the war, and and it was not pleasant to to be around her. In fact, people went out of the way to make sure that if we were sent out on details, we were not on the same one. It was really, really uh, the end of any kind of. We were never really friends or anything, but we certainly never were friends after that. And so I've always kind of regretted that because I, I didn't know what it was like to be a parent at you know, a, a mom or a dad in a time of war. And so, you know, this is the, the third night of the war after the war starts and everyone thinks Iraq has been knocked completely helpless. They, they start shooting back. What we didn't know is that crack sound that we heard was not an incoming Scud missile. It was the sound of a Patriot missile firing um, to intercept a Scud missile. There were Scud missile attacks on Saudi Arabia that night and Israel. And the Patriot missile, which was not designed to intercept missiles, was being used for that purpose. And how it worked is it went up into the air and got as close to the missile as possible and exploded. And there was a lot of debate after the war if it did more harm than good, because now you have two missiles in the air, and those particles are falling down everywhere. Fragments are falling everywhere. And so that's what it was. But we didn't know that 
at the time. It, it sounded like a, a bomb had been dropped right outside our right outside our building. When I was a child, lightning hit a tree in our backyard while we were eating dinner, and, and it, again, sounded like the earth had been shaken in half. This was much louder than that and, and much more getting much more attention-grabbing than lightning because you're expecting lightning and thunder when it's raining outside. You weren't expecting this kind of thunder and lightning when you're in the middle of sleep. And so that was, I guess, our baptism under fire, if you will. And I made the decision just not to be scared. I remember my dad saying, you'd be scared out of your mind. And I made the conscious decision not to be scared. Mike wasn't scared. Um, Sergeant Fears might have been surprised. But most people, as I mentioned in a previous podcast, people did not act heroically. They acted honorably. 99% of everybody just took it in stride. It was not pleasant, but uh, very few people uh, melted down the way that young lady did. Now, Kind of a funny postscript to the last podcast where the, the chaplain, a.k.a. the morale officer, according to the Saudi Arabians, um, who needed our help but didn't want any uh, American culture being brought into the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, he had had that uh, prayer service the first night we got there, and nobody went to it. I don't mean a few people showed up. I mean nobody went to it. That's how I ended up with the door prize of a little testament and psalms, a little book of the, the New Testament and some psalms in it, and that transistor radio that I used to monitor the war for those first two days and throughout the war, for that matter. The next night when I went down to sign in for guard duty in the basement, I walked by that same common room that had been vacant two nights before, and he was in there holding a prayer vigil, and the place was Packed. Okay, there are no atheists in foxholes, and there are there are no atheists at at Ground Zero of Operation Desert Storm. Just kind of a funny side observation. What happens next is a few more nights of these scud attacks, but we begin to settle into one of the most dangerous things you can settle into during the war, and that is a routine. Next episode, I'm going to talk to you about what Super Bowl Sunday was like in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia during Operation Desert Storm in 1991, an unforgettable experience, and you don't want to miss next episode. So thank you so much for listening to Thunder and Lightning Operation Desert Storm. My name is Jason Diaz, and until next we speak... We'll talk to you soon. And we're going to get out of here with one of my other favorite cassettes that I had with me, the Commodores and the Night Shift. Mama, Mama,